Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. Uber wants to beat Amazon of retail, of e-commerce. The Disney Plus service might actually end up benefiting Netflix. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. Capital return is the key story for the U.S. banks. The telcos naturally are moving into content distribution. I think it's a good move. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we will dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we're going to take a look at GameStop. No shortage of news there. How will this saga end? Plus, why the video game maker's borrow rate is fueling a $500 million retail ETF exodus. So first, we're going to begin with why speculative retail trading may not be evidence of an equity bubble. And to help us understand, we want to welcome Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Equity Strategist Gina Martin-Adams. Hey, Gina. So it's been a really fun couple weeks. (laughs) Yeah, you could say that. (laughs) Um, So the conversation was, oh, my goodness, look at what's happening with all these stocks that are being traded by the Reddit guys. That means we're in a bubble. Help. Is that true? Yeah, you know, I don't think it's true. I think it's the latest in a long line of um, occurrences that have been point to as equity market bubbles. But the reality of the equity markets is we seem to be in a longer-term uptrend that continually gets refreshed by periods of weakness and nervousness on the part of investors. I'm worried that we're close to one of those periods right now, as investors do appear to look at what's happening with GameStop and the Reddit trades and a a lot of rage happening in the retail universe (laughs) as a symptom of instability in the market. But the evidence that um, that we look through would suggest the markets are on pretty solid footing, frankly, and with an economic recovery around the corner, now may not be the time to suggest that any sort of equity trend is likely to get dismantled. Yeah, Gina, one of the things I've been you know, thinking about is the Fed has done all it can do, arguably, to backstop this market, to support this market. The fiscal stimulus has been pretty robust to date, and there's 
expectations of more to come. And as you mentioned, the economy expected to rebound uh, in 2021. Uh, at some point, earnings have to matter. Companies have to come through with earnings. What are we yeah. seeing so far in this earnings cycle? It's actually been really fascinating. Earnings have been extraordinary, at least relative to analyst forecasts. Uh, the reaction to the market in the markets to earnings has not been that positive, which does suggest that the market price may have already in, may already have implied a very strong fourth quarter earnings season. But frankly, earnings are looking to escape recession, at least in terms of the S and P 500 earnings stream, is looking to re escape recession early. It looks like in the fourth quarter. The S&P 500 may have actually posted earnings growth relative to a year ago. Analysts were expecting a near 10% decline in earnings at the start of earnings season. So companies are definitely beating those expectations. I think that there's a sticky point, and that is the companies are not giving us a ton of intelligence or uh, excitement about the outlook. Uh, they're still somewhat reticent to give a lot of guidance. To the extent that they are giving guidance, they're giving very positive guidance. Uh, particularly relative to negative guides, which are almost negligible. But it's only about a fifth of the S&P 500 has offered any commentary with respect to the likely outlook for earnings. And I think that that's a source of some degree of frustration as we wait for the economic visibility to improve into 2021. I can't remember an earnings season that I talked least about. Right. To be honest, um, which is also kind of crazy um, to, to go to the retail bubble conversation for a second, because that's sort of what's overshadowing whatever earnings or fundamentals for the time being. What are some of the indicators that you'd look at to show that retail is in a bubble? And I'm just going to throw some out here, but you tell me yours, like how much retail ownership is in stocks, like how much yeah. money households have, like wh what are the indicators for you? Yeah, some of our favorites are just those. So we look at things like household ownership of equities, and what you would anticipate is if we are in a bubble kind of environment, we would see household retail demand at large accelerating over time. And somewhat interestingly, last, week, last year in 2020, we did see an increase in retail trading activity, but we did not see a material increase in household ownership of equities. As a matter of fact, you can go all the way back to 2010, and the improvement in household balance sheet equity allocations has just marked time with the improvement in the market. So net-net households have added almost nothing to their equity exposure. They've just ridden the wave of the equity market. You would expect to see them adding to equity exposure. The other thing I think that you can point to is just sort of the fundamental landscape. Um, we talked a little bit about the Fed. We talked a little bit about retail ownership. But what you would generally see in an environment of extraordinary risk-taking is a low to negative equity risk premium. And that is the yield on stocks relative to the yield on bonds should be very, very low, reflecting an extraordinary amount of risk tolerance. That's what we saw in the 80 to, to 2000 bull market. The risk premium was negative. So investors were freely embracing risk. They were all in on equities as a source of risk in their portfolios. Somewhat anomalously today, that equity risk premium is still a full standard deviation above its long-term average prior to the great financial crisis. We've been in this period of time since 2009 in which investors are very hesitant to embrace risk in public equities. Uh, and that main, has maintained, even with the rally that we've seen since COVID-19, even including all of the rallies since 2009, we've been in a period of a very high risk premium refle reflecting investor intolerance for risk as opposed to an out outright embrace of stocks.
Gina, so good to catch up. It's been a while. Um, Gina Martin-Adams, Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Equity Strategist. Coming up on the program. GameStop. 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 You've heard that name a lot this week. We'll take a deep dive next. You are listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 13 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. GameStop, one of the big names of the week. A big question, however. Short squeeze or pump and dump? To walk us through it all, Bloomberg Intelligence Director of Market Strategy Research, Larry Tab. So, Larry, let's start. I'm not going to ask what your favorite games are um, or if you're a Game Boy. Uh, the angle we want to do is what happened to the Robinhood app and some of these other apps upon which these folks were trading? A lot of uncertainty about maybe what went on, how they handled the trading volume. What can you tell us? Yeah, um, I'm not sure there's any major conspiracy theories going on here. I, I think this is really just to, you know, um, ensure that, that uh, Robinhood had enough capital to, to settle all their trades. All of the trades, uh, equity trades and corporate bond trades and, and other some other products, cleared through an entity called the DTCC. They're the big clearinghouse for all the equity trades. Um, and what they do is... Um, uh, they take the other side to every trade so that when I trade against you or whoever, I don't have to worry about whether you have the securities or the money to to, to send to me uh, when these trades clear. Uh, the problem, and, and this is usually pretty seamless because the way that the settlement process works is it's a net settlement. So um, 
on any normal day, the number of buyers is pretty similar to the number of sellers. Yeah, there might be some names that are, you know, more heavily on the buy side or more heavily on the sell side, but they net everything off. And there's one settlement per security. And generally, the value of that security doesn't change that radically. It could go up a couple of points or down a couple of points. But by and large, securities generally trade in relationship to their value. Now comes GameStop um, that, that's you know being executed uh, very heavily by uh, a certain number of, of brokers. Um, a lot of them are, are, are buying this and not, not as many are selling. So now all of a sudden, uh, instead of the buy and sell being pretty evenly uh, paired off, there's a tremendous balance, which basically means, especially if, if GameStop or Robinhood guys are buying GameStop, they need to have a lot of cash in their account. The the other challenge here is that, you know, the the, the price that this you know the, these securities were trading at last week was between three and five hundred bucks. When kind of the the value of the security, you know, is kind of more like. 20 or 30 bucks or maybe even less than that. So the question becomes is, uh, you know, when these things get around to settling it, will these companies be solvent? Will the people who have bought this stock have the money to pay for it? And it's not like, well, you know, they took the money out of my account when I hit the buy button. The problem is that Robinhood can't use your capital uh, to clear those trades at the DTCC, they have to use Robinhood's capital. And um, given the number of buyers at GameStop at a value so much higher than than you know the fair value price of GameStop, um, there's a tremendous amount of risk. And for that risk, the DTCC wants extra collateral to ensure that they can clear those trades. Um, is that the right way to just to keep doing this? Is that the right way to do this? Um, it's the way that we've been doing it for a long time. No, I know it, but 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 um, but, but I but, wonder if like we have to rethink how things are done, and if so, well, like what would that look like? Rethinking isn't a bad idea. Um, we we you know, ages ago we settled securities in five days. Oh, geez, twenty maybe more, probably closer to thirty years, maybe even more than that. We moved from five to three. And just a year or two ago, we moved from three to two. Um, uh, so, yeah, we could move to one day or we can move to the evening trade day. Uh, but it, it entails actually an awful lot of industry work. A lot of the systems need, need to be changed. And processes, even more than the systems, processes need to be changed, which could make it you know, more complicated for folks to, to, to actually settle these trades. Um, and if... You know, depending upon, you know, you've got to also remember, you know, the, the real challenge is that the value of GameStop was being traded way above its fair value. So the question is, how often will this occur? If this becomes, you know, something that happens frequently, yeah, it might actually be worth you know, going through uh, the effort, which would probably cost hundreds of millions, if not a billion dollars to fix, um, to really rewrite. And it's not just rewriting DTCC systems, it's really rethinking the whole back office for every single brokerage firm, every single custodian, every single uh, investment manager, uh, as well as the, the industry infrastructure. It, it's a lot of work. Uh, Larry, was this a lack of proper or adequate capital at Robinhood and some of these other 
trading platforms that uh, maybe a quick fix would be just requiring them to hold more capital? Yeah, that, that's that, and that's kind of what happened. Um, last week, I think it was Thursday, they, they borrowed a, an extra billion dollars. Uh, I think they borrowed another couple of billion dollars uh, either yesterday or over the weekend or something like that. Um, so, yeah, it, it, you know, it's a capital problem. Um, that said, they could reduce the amount of capital by reducing the number of uh, days to settlement. So um, every day uh, you don't settle the trade is more risk that, that you know, more margin that's, you know, that to cover the risk of, of somebody going, um, you know, bust. So, Larry, if we walk it forward a little bit, um, the question that everyone was sort of asking the second week was, is it over? And I guess there's a lot of layers to that. One is, you know, is the short-term craziness, craziness with the Reddit traders done? And if yes, does it come back or is it over forever? How do you see this evolving in the world? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, clear, you know, um, clearly... Um, uh, GameStop may be over, but certainly not near its high, and it was selling off. Uh, that's they, you know they were looking at silver, they were looking at some other other things that they could create short squeezes on. Um, you know, it's hard to say it's going to be over because clearly there's a lot of people and a lot of retail investors moving into the market, um, and. And social media continues to play a factor, an increasing factor in, in this market. Hey, Larry, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate it. Larry Tab, he's a Bloomberg Intelligence Director of Market Structure Research. All right, coming up on the program, we're not done with GameStop because we want to talk about what its borrow rate could mean for ETFs. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Swing. And I'm Alex Steele. It's 25 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. We'll be here each and every week at this time, tapping into our Bloomberg Intelligence analysts covering some 2,000 companies and 130 industries worldwide. Our next guest points out that GameStop's 200% borrow rate is fueling a $500 million retail ETF exodus. Joining us now to break it down is Bloomberg Intelligence ETF analyst Jim Seifert. Hey, Jim, first off, explain what a borrow rate is, and then we can get into the details. Yeah, so a borrow rate in, in this case is just how much it costs to short a stock. So if you're going to borrow a stock or bet on it going down, you're going to pay some fee to, to make that bet. All right, so how does this relate to ETF trading? Yeah, so, I mean, what that rate tells you is that, one, that it's through the roof. That's extremely high, um, and that tells you there's a lot of demand to short this stock at this point. So that was on January 27th. So there was a ton of demand to get these shares so people could short them. Um, and what happened is they're, they're, people were just trying to find places to pull GameStop stock from anywhere. And they went to this one ETF, XRT. Um, it's a Spider S&P retail ETF. It equal weights all its holdings. And essentially, GameStop, when it went on its meteoric rise, became a large holding in the fund. And all that demand, as shown by that short interest level and the borrow rate, came up with people pulling money out of the fund basically to get their hands on this GameStop stock. So... Say that part one more time. So they're trying to get their money, their, their hands on the GameStop stock, and they use the retail ETF to do it? 
Yeah, so what happens is they, they would have went into the market mm-hmm. and bought tons of shares, millions of shares, and what they then do is they take those shares and go to the issuer with those shares and say, give me all the constituents, give me all the ingredients in this, in this fund. So what they do is they get all the underlying shares that are involved in this fund, and they take delivery of them. And what they did with the rest, we don't know. What they actually did with the GameStop shares, we don't know. Uh, but we know they, they probably went in there solely for the purpose of pulling out these GameStop shares. All right. So when a stock, whether it's GameStop or AMC or any of the other ones that have these big moves, when they spike up or down in value, like I'm looking at some of your charts here, you know, just huge spikes here. What does the ETF have to do? Does the ETF have to sell it to reduce its weighting or how do they adjust? So it's both the it's both a, a positive and a negative, right? So the XRT is a passive fund, so it rebalances quarterly. Um, so what that does, this this one I mentioned before, it's, it's equal weighted. So everything they they have about 95 holdings. Each one should be at one percent weight. But when you do that, when something go like GameStop goes up 1,600 percent, all of a sudden GameStop went to a 20 percent weighting. So normally, if you're an active manager, there was probably active managers that held this thing that started selling it when it got to that level. But as a passive portfolio, they can't do that. They have to follow the rules of the index, and then next rebalancing, the next time they would ever sell this to put it back to that 1% weight is until the end of March. So basically, XRT just held on to its weighting at whatever the market determined it to be. I mean, ETF shouldn't work like that, though, right? I mean, this shouldn't be a thing. That shouldn't be how investors use ETFs to get their uh, hands on, uh, on, on shares of a stock that's heavily shorted and no one can find shares. Uh, well, I would push back. I think I think ETFs are meant to be uh, a liquidity valve in the market. We see it happen multiple times, specifically in the fixed income market, where these fixed income ETFs almost act like bond dealers, where large institutions will come in and buy up shares um, and redeem to get the underlying bonds, or, or vice versa. Sometimes you'll go and you can deliver the underlying physical bonds, or in this case, underlying physical shares of the, the equity securities, and get shares of the ETF and then sell them off into the market. Um, and that's a way to just like... It's, it ends up using being a liquidity tool because the ETF itself is going to be very liquid. So we see hyper uh, lockup of liquidity, specifically in times like March. You can see people turn to the ETF specifically to do this type of thing. So it seems to me when we see these crazy trading, huge volumes, if I step back and say, who's the winner here? Isn't the net winner just Wall Street? Because there's fees being paid somewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's undoubtedly Wall Street. I mean, there, you, you talk about this from the Reddit side of this. They're, they're attacking a few hedge funds that were short this stock. But in the long run, the bigger, the larger portion of Wall Street benefited here. These things traded a ton. The specific stocks traded very wide. Um, there's fees that go into creating and redeeming these shares. Uh, so Wall Street was going out there and just making a killing on all of these different facets of the marketplace trading like this. So if you're a market maker like Virtue Financial or Citadel or anything like that, you love all this heightened volatility and heightened liquidity. Oh, my God. Totally. Uh, <laughs> those bid asks res for sure. Um, hey, were there other ETFs, uh, et cetera, that sort of felt this kind of uh, pressure or served this purpose in, in, in the short squeeze action? So there weren't any other ETFs that felt this exact same situation. There were other ETFs that saw, obviously saw GameStop skyrocket to very high levels in the weighting. But XRT is unique because it's, it's a highly liquid ETF. A lot of institutions use it. It's often used as actually like a pairs trade. So what a lot of hedge funds will do, they'll actually short the ETF and buy something like Amazon. Wow. Okay, analogy. a lot of stuff going on here. <laughs> Our thanks to Bloomberg Intelligence ETF analyst James Safer. All right, coming up on the program. To expedite the boarding process, we are going to ask that you please step out of the aisle once you have found your assigned seat. 
Amy Fear on your right, D, E, and Upper on the left. Paul, so many. Can't wait to hear that sound again. You are one of them. We're going to yes, take a look at what could lead post-pandemic travel recovery. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. It's 39 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. All right, time to look at why low-cost airlines, local casinos, and fintechs could lead an upturn for travel. I want to welcome Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Industry Analyst Julie Shariel. So low-cost airlines and local casinos, I'm feeling like this is a let's get on a two-hour plane ride kind of thing, not let's go to Europe kind of thing. Exactly. So we know that everyone's kind of feeling this pent-up demand, right, for travel and getting away. But we also have still have safety in mind, and and you know not everyone is willing to get on an airplane right now and, and travel very far. But if we start getting more comfortable and we can start going to our local casino or a nearby destination um, with a nice hotel, we're probably going to do it, you know, as, as soon as we can. So we think that those the groups that really um, serve that kind of traveler are going to start coming back, um, seeing some revenue improvements as early as the second quarter and the third quarter. So, Julie, what should we be looking for as some kind of leading indicators? Would it be, you know, bookings at Airbnb and, and things like that or some of the online uh, travel sites? What, what are you guys at, in, in the analysts at BI looking at? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as travel starts to come back, you know, it'll take a little bit longer for the revenue to show up, but we'll start seeing the bookings sooner. And we'll see those bookings with some of the online travel agents, especially an Airbnb or a booking.com that tend to book um, more local or U.S. domestic destinations. Um, and then even, interestingly, Visa MasterCard, um, because most of travel is booked on a credit card. Um, and so we may begin to see as early as the second quarter uh, some nice bookings 
bookings numbers, payment volume coming through um, for Visa and MasterCard as people begin to, to book their trips. It'll get even better when international travel comes back, uh, we think, in the second half. So why casinos? Can't you just do all that stuff online now? Um, I suppose you can if you want to, but I think, you know, just that idea of getting away, right? Yeah. I mean, we've all been so Let's much. Go to Vegas. <laughs> oh, good. Online. Go ahead. <laughs> we could do something else somewhere else, right? Why not? <laughs> Vegas, baby. I'm with you on that one. So it's interesting, you know, when we think about the airlines, Julie, I think the, I guess the consensus is um, leisure travel comes back before business travels. Is that what you and the analysts at BI are, are hearing from some of these companies? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're seeing it sort of in three stages. So the first stage, that kind of second to third quarter, is the regional travel, domestic U.S. travel. The next stage um, is more international travel. That's third quarter, fourth quarter, but still more leisure customers. By 2022, we think business travel begins to come back. And that's a whole different group of players who can start to benefit. But businesses at this point don't seem to be um, ready to act that quickly to get people back on the road again, you know, taking, uh, taking risks. Um, and also we're showing that you know, Zoom works pretty well. And there are a lot of meetings that we've done, even conferences, that we felt we had to travel for that maybe we don't necessarily have to. So when business starts business travel does start coming back, say, in early 2022, it could come back more slowly. So when people do go travel, I was jo- joking with casinos, but okay, so you want to go to casino. Is it going to be like high-end stuff, or is it still going to be like people on a tighter budget you don't want to spend, you want to be more conservative? Like which part of the industry uh, for hospitality is going to do better first? Yeah, so probably in that, that first round of regional domestic you know, players, on the um, on the casino side, um, you know, we're thinking more of the the local casinos. So that would be um, a Penn, uh, Boyd Gaming, Churchill Downs. Um, on the hotel front, in in that regard, have more Wyndham hotels, kind of low service, economical, um, nearby kinds of trips. As we get into the to, as this, this begins to broaden out, you get into some of the hybrid casinos, um, like an MGM. Um, for instance, that um, has has both local and destination hotels. Caesars is another one I put um, I put in that group. Um, and then you start to you know, longer term as you get into international. That's when the big hotel chains do well. Cruises maybe start to come back, um, and 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 some of those long haul airlines, um, Lufthansa, United, that cater to the business traveler. Hey, Julie, how about the restaurant business? You know, it's you know, when we had outdoor dining, I was all in on that. So, I mean, that felt fine to me, felt comfortable there. It was kind of like old times, and the restaurants, you know, certainly just made great strides in, in making uh, that, that a good experience. But even now here in Jersey, with in, they have limited indoor dining. Eh, I'm just kind of hard pass on that. So what are the restaurants? How are they thinking about the reopen trade? Yeah, on the restaurant side, it continues to be really tough, right? You know, we see we see volumes there down 20, 30 percent, but um, there is a way to there. There are opportunities there um, right now because of the because of the cold weather in much of the country, because of the restrictions on indoor dining. We're still looking at the QSR restaurants, the quick service restaurants that are good at delivery and good at pickup, and they've gotten much better at it, right, since the pandemic. So that's McDonald's, Domino's. Uh, Chipotle. Um, those, I think, will, will continue to do well kind of through the next couple of quarters. 
And then once they get into the warmer weather again in the summer, people are more comfortable and able to eat outside. With some of those, those um, other chains, like a cheesecake factory, which is really taking it hard because of their big California presence, all the restrictions there, they can start coming back. Fine dining, though, you know, a Ruth's Hospitality, for instance, again, it's going to be later down the road because they cater to a lot of business travelers as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a good point. Um, so basically, go grab your Taco Bell and go to a local casino <laughs> in your local plane. Um, uh, what has these stocks already priced in on that? Um, so it's been it's been pretty mixed across the board. So when we look at some of the early beneficiaries that we talked about, like the online travel agents, Visa and MasterCard, they're kind of pretty close to their pre-pandemic levels. They're a little bit down in January, um, but they're you know, they've they've made somewhat of a move. Um, the airlines still are uh, are over 30 percent or so around there, down from their their pre-pandemic highs. Um, cruise. Cruise, cruise uh, companies even more so, um, and the hotels kind of around the same area, maybe a little bit better than the airlines. So still, we're talking twenty, thirty, or percent or more below pre-pandemic levels, even though they're off of their lows from from March, April. Um, all right, Julie, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Julie Sherriel, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Industry Analyst. From one outlook to another, let's switch our focus to what's ahead for global energy. Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Industry Analyst Will Harris joins us with Bloomberg Intelligence 2021 Global Energy Projections. All right, Will, let's start with the easy one. Where's oil go? <laughs> yeah, yeah so that, that, that's one of our main ones, actually. So I, I think I should probably just start by saying that our, our, so our energy predictions are, are coming uh, from multiple analysts from across all our regions, and all are really drawing on changes in this year prompted by or in context of um, last year's uh, pandemic, and we've really placed them into three rough buckets. And so, as, as you mentioned, uh, of course, uh, first is, is oil demand, uh, and, and our, our main headline uh, prediction for this year is that global oil demand will not recover to those pre-pandemic levels by year-end. Uh, and this is despite we um, us uh, looking at a, at a pretty quick recovery through the second half. However, the first half is going to be much, much slower um, as as vaccines are gradually rolled out and and um, these economic trade and travel restrictions that that we've all gotten so used to um, very gradually ease through through that first half. Well, I was going to say so. So a lot of analysts, not a lot, but some analysts think that they are going to see a supply crunch or at least the deficit being eaten away, uh, or as I should say, the surplus being eaten away because of the OPEC cuts, um, and that's really going to make a big difference from Saudi Arabia coming in helping to support the market. It's going to help inventories draw faster now, so when there is a recovery, uh, we can get into a deficit faster. W- what do you see that they might not? Well, so uh, the the big the big question here is is what does Saudi Arabia's policy do post March? As we know, Saudi Arabia has uh, took that this voluntary output cut at the beginning of the year through um, uh, January, February, and March for one million barrels per day. This is offering that proof that that and their commitment to market stability, but also in our view, showing its real concern about the pace of oil demand recovery in in the first quarter. And so we're going to see where um, where this policy moves beyond March, and and a, a lot of the um, price action in oil is is going to be dependent on that. But we still see the first half being being pretty fragile, um, and and moving moving into a, a deficit through the second half. But we still see it being a very gradual through through this year, and starting to pick up steam later on in this year. All right, Will, talk to us about the U.S. shale patch there. How is that? 
contributing or how's that impacting global supply? Yeah, so well, we see uh, the U.S. shale patch being pretty flat this year, uh, and and of course, there's there's multiple factors at play here. We've we've seen a big pullback in spending, of course, uh, and, and also um, more recently, uh, President uh, Joe Biden's uh, immediate uh, sort of climate-focused executive actions, headlined by the that pausing of of um, uh, lease permitting on federal lands and waters is, is really going to, to start coming through on, on volume uh, additions. We're also, we also saw the canceling of the Keystone XL pipeline permit. And, and then, of course, much, much longer term, the, the expansion of, of the government's uh, electric car fleet. But yes, uh, uh, up, up front is, is the um, is U.S. shale uh, um, production, which is which is definitely flattening this year from from the meteoric growth that, that we've seen uh, in, in the last several years, primarily as a result of the big big pullback uh, in in spending through last year um, for for these uh, for these high decline rate wells, particularly in the Permian. Such a good point. So much more to talk about. But we got to let it leave it there. Uh, Will Hares, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, a senior industry analyst. Thank you so very much. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the Terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.